Let's begin by reading our text this evening. We're in Revelation chapter 12 and we're starting in verse 1. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and agony and of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven, and behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his heads seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1260 days. Now a war arose in heaven and Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon and against the dragon and his angels, they fought back. But he was defeated as there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that serpent, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. And he was thrown down to the earth, and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power of the kingdom of God, of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heaven, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place that she uh, is to be nourished for a time, times and half a time. The serpent poured uh, poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, uh, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring and on those who keep the commandments of God and to hold to the testimony of Jesus Christ. And he stood on the sand of the sea." Over the last 10 years, there has no doubt been an abundance of superhero movies, haven't there? How many times have we reinvented Batman? In fact, how many different actors have played Batman over the years? And now we're coming out with another one, with another actor to portray Batman. I think we've rebooted Spider-Man at least four times. The Incredible Hulk three times. And now we are scraping the bottom of the barrel to create movies like Ant-Man and the new Fantastic Four. 
But superhero movies only attract us because they also contain super villains. Individuals that require a superhero to bring down to nothing. And so we begin to cheer and we begin to uh, identify. Ever since TV began or entertainment began, there were always those who wore black hats and always those who wore white. And there were those knights who were the black knights. And there were those knights that were the white knights. And today we have superheroes. And of course, often they uh, move against supervillains and such. Well, that particular theme storyline isn't new in and of itself. It's from the creation of all things. For our superhero is none other than Christ himself and his glorious Holy Father. But we have an adversary who is not nearly as great as our superhero Christ, but one who has enough ability to distort the world in which God has created. We are referring to none other than Satan himself. And Satan is a reality that many do not like to consider today. In fact, when individuals approach the subject of Satan, they make usually one of two errors in doing so. Either A, they regard him so highly that they feel that he has all the same capabilities that God does, and therefore they feel like they are in continuous subjection to him, or they give him too little credit, that they don't consider him at all. They don't believe he exists. Either one is great error. And it was C.S. Lewis that brought that out and showed us and demonstrated that to us through his screw tape letters. But Satan is a reality. The Bible calls him the ruler of this world. Jesus says he has come to lies, to steal, and to destroy. And Peter told us and wrote that he goes about like a roaring lion, seeking whom he may destroy. But every Christian should have one point uh, of theology correct when it comes to Satan. And this point only contains three words. It's a point that you should memorize and understand fully about Satan. And I'll give it to you as simply as I can. Satan hates you. That's one aspect of the theology of Satan that everyone must know. Satan hates you. And he will do whatever it takes to trip you up, stumble you, destroy your life. The world is destroying lives one right after another. The world promises people everything and delivers absolutely nothing. Temporal pleasures at best at the moment with eternal destruction lying in its wake. That is all that this ruler of this world has to offer. The lust of the eyes, the lust of the flesh, and the pride of life. It is through these mechanisms that Satan tempts us and draws us away from God. Why? Because Satan hates you. It isn't that he just merely dislikes you. It isn't that you are just a mere annoyance to him. He hates you. Why? Because Jesus 
loves you. And because of that fact, you love Jesus and are following him. Chuck Swindoll said it this way, all who love and follow Christ and his teachings must never forget those three words, Satan hates you. He wants nothing more than to sabotage our love for God and for others, to tempt us into moral catastrophe and or to see us choose a lifestyle of sin rather than a walk with the Lord Jesus Christ. When we falter, he stands ready to accuse us before God. And when we pass the test of temptation, he looks beyond that and is already strategizing his next attack. Satan hates us with a relentless passion. Within the next two chapters, we've entitled this message, The Terrible Trio. Because within these next two chapters, we are going to be introduced to our arch rival, our arch enemy, the grand villain himself, Satan, and his two henchmen, the beast and the false prophet in chapter 13. Again, these are realities that people need to wake up and to understand exist. Tonight we are going to be given a glimpse, as we have already read, behind the veil of the meta-narrative that is taking place all around us, and it is playing out before us in the world in which we live. Nothing is an accident. The chaos that we see in front of us and all around us in this world today are all steps that are leading us to the end of all things. And the Bible clearly tells us things will get worse before they get better. It'll be darkest before the dawn, and that truth is really prevalent today. There are so many things happening in our world today, some overtly, some covertly. Everything from politics to geographics to um, economics Almost every aspect, there's turmoil, there's trouble, there's difficulty on the horizon. And all of these things will be a precursor to the end that the henchmen of Satan himself will capitalize upon. A chaos will arise, a crisis will arise, and one will come to meet that crisis and to add fuel to the fire of that crisis. And as we begin, we begin with the wonders that we find in heaven, verses 1 through 6. And we begin with John stating here in verse 1, And a great sign appeared in heaven. Very interesting words in the Greek. It meant that something has appeared before him that is significant. It is pointing ahead to something that is yet to come meaning that it is a sign pointing the way or telling us what is happening and going to happen next. If you've ever taken a long road trip, after a while you become thankful to see those signs, don't you? To see how many miles you have left before you finally arrive to your destination. And you start counting down those roadsides, don't you? And if it's a very long trip, you begin to count down the mile markers. I know my father used to. Three more, two more, one more, we're there. 
Thank God. And as these signs are playing out before John, he sees a woman, a very interesting sign for him to see. The word sign here is used in the same way that the sign was used in the birth of Jesus Christ, that being the star itself, symbolizing and heralding that something unique is happening. In fact, many believed at that time that the, uh, uh, the astrology would often depict and point to actions that would unfold here on this earth. It would happen in heaven, and what happens in the heavens then would play itself out on the earth. And you find that in numerous pagan religions. But John is showing us that there's something happening behind the veil that is actually playing out uh, through the earth, but it is much more than just the zodiac itself. It is a great cosmic conflict, as Os Guinness once wrote. It's demonstrating that there's something going on behind the scenes. We are being given the overall picture of the events that are taking place now within the seven-year period that is articulated for us from chapter 6 to chapter 19 of the book of Revelation. And in it we are introduced to one, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars." The identity of the woman is easily understood by an Old Testament passage that is found in Genesis chapter 37, verses 9 and 10. It's concerning a dream that Joseph had. And as this text reads in Genesis 37, 9 through 10, then he, that is Joseph, dreamed another dream and told it to his brothers and said, Behold, I have dreamed another dream. Behold, the sun, the moon, And the eleven stars were bowing down to me. But when he told it to his father and to his brothers, his his father rebuked him and said to him, What is this dream that you have dreamed? Shall I and your mother and your brothers indeed come to bow ourselves to you before you on the ground? The woman here depicted in our chapter is undoubtedly the nation of Israel itself. This is one of the key reasons that I believe that the events of Revelation are geared towards and targeted to the nation of Israel. In which in 1948, God reassembled his people there in his nation. In 1967, they gathered and captured the, the city of Jerusalem. And now they are waiting for the final chapter to play out before us. They are now gathered together in that nation, ready for these events to take place. With the removal of the church before the tribulation period, God now returns to his, his promised plan concerning the nation of Israel and their disobedience that was articulated for us in Daniel chapter 9, verses 24 through 27. And we're going to see it's this woman who brings forth a child, as we had read, who will rule the nations with a rod of iron. Undoubtedly, that could only be the person of Jesus Christ. For many thought that this woman uh, was a symbol of Mary herself. But we see from Genesis 39 that it's speaking of the nation of Israel itself. The 12 stars are definitely representing the 12 tribes as we found here. 
Joseph being one of the stars himself. The sun and the moon being Jacob and Rachel. And we're going to see that the woman is going to flee. Verse 10. I'm sorry, verse uh, 2. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains. And the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, a great red dragon with seven heads, ten horns on his head, and seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth so that when she bore her child, he may devour it. She gave birth to a male child, undoubtedly Christ himself, one who is to rule over all the nations with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. That's the ascension. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she had a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Or if you look at it from the perspective of years, using a 360-day calendar, which they did at the time, we come to three and a half years. Throughout the Old Testament, God has often referred to Israel as a woman. Isaiah 54, 5, 66, 7, Jeremiah 3, 6 through 10, Micah 4, 10, 5, 2, and 3. And we are told that it is Israel that has been warned to flee in Mark 13, 14. But when you see Jesus speaking to his disciples, the abomination of desolation standing where he ought not be, let the reader understand and let those who are in Judea flee to the mountains. So we have the woman, Israel, bringing forth the birth of Christ. As Satan waited there, as that child was being heralded by an, uh, by an angel and a star from heaven, Herod waited in anticipation. And what happened? Herod ordered the slaughter of children to see if he could keep the king from coming forth. And of course, he was unsuccessful. Jesus then fulfilled the plan and purpose in which God set before him. He then ascended into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God. So who is the red dragon that is depicted before us here? Well, it's no other than the devil himself. He's described in a very interesting way that we'll look at more closely as we get to Revelation chapter 7. But the seven heads we will find out later refer to seven mountains. The ten horns will be seen as ten kings, and this is consistent with Daniel 7, 7 through 8. I'll read it for you. After this I saw in the night vision, and behold, a fourth beast, terrifying and dreadful and exceedingly strong. It had great iron teeth, and it devoured and broke in pieces and stamped what was left with its feet. It was different from all the other beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. And I considered the horns, and behold, there came up among them, from among them, a horn, a little horn, before which the three of the first horns were plucked up by the roots, and behold, in this horn were the eyes uh, like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking great and pompous things. These ten horns we are going to find are ten kings. Three of the kings at the rise of this small horn will fall away. That's why only seven diadems are found standing at this point. 
Now, I don't want to look at this more closely this evening because as we get into 13 and 17 of Revelation, it's more clearly depicted for us. But it is Satan. And what we're seeing here is that Satan is working through these nations, these ten nations. God is working through the one nation, Israel, bringing forth His Son, Jesus Christ. So what is playing out before us is actually taking place behind the veil in heaven. And there's a great conflict that is taking part. We noticed here that with the fall of Satan, as he he will be thrown down in just a moment, a third of the stars fall with him. When Satan fell, and I believe the fall of Satan is found in two places in the Old Testament, Isaiah 14, 12 through 14, and Ezekiel 28, 11 through 19. You can read those on your own for time's sake, but it's important to know those passages. Referring to two different kings, one of Babylon, the other the king of Tyre, we have within it containing a little glimpse behind the curtain once again to see the fall of Satan to see how it actually occurred there at the moment of uh, uh, when creation began and so forth, that Satan fell. And how he tried to rise himself up in great pomp and pride and how he was cast down. At that moment, a third of the angels fell with him. And as a result, those fallen angels have now been found to be what we call demons today. This is important to understand. Satan himself is an angel. He is one of the three angels named in the Bible. We have Gabriel, Michael, who we're going to see in just a moment, and Satan. Many believe that he held a place of prominence in heaven before his fall. And after his fall, with the fall of a third of the angels who rebelled against God, he was then cast down Though we are surprised to find out that up until this point in Revelation chapter 12, Satan is often found in the throne room of God itself. Standing there accusing Christians and the brothers before God the Father. And so the stage is set. And as the male child is now born, we know to be Jesus. For the psalmist writes in Psalm 2, 7 and 9, I will tell of the decree, the Lord said to me, you are my son. Today I have begotten you. Ask of me and I will make the nations your heritage and the ends of the earth your possessions. You shall break them with the rod of iron and dash them to, in pieces like a potter's vessel. So we've been introduced to the woman Israel We've been introduced to Satan and his fallen angels. We've been introduced to the male child, Jesus Christ. And now we're going to be introduced to the war that is in heaven. We move from the wonders of heaven to the war that is now taking place in heaven at this time. And it begins here in verse 7. Now a war arose in heaven. Most believe this is actually... Uh, breaks out during the tribulation period. Most believe that it happens at the three and a half year mark. And Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon. And the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated 
And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. Here we find Michael once again. Michael is mentioned throughout the Bible. In the Old Testament, he is always overseeing the nation of Israel. When we come to Daniel chapter 10, we discover the prince of the king of, uh, kingdom of Persia withstood me for 21 days. And as you know the backstory, an angel has been sent to Daniel to give him the message on behalf of God, but was resisted by the uh, king, kingdom of Persia, meaning the uh, demonic forces over that land. And then he goes, they resisted me or withstood me for 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes, came to help me, for I was left there with the kings of Persia, and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days, for the vision is for, a, for the days yet to come. In the book of Daniel, you have what I call the preface to the book of Revelation. To understand the book of Revelation, you have to understand the book of Daniel. And Daniel gives us usually the foundation for the imagery that is found in the book of Revelation. In Daniel chapter 10, a little bit farther, verses 20 and 21, we are introduced to Michael once again. And then he said, Do you not know why I have come to you? But, I, but now I will return uh, to fight against the prince of Persia. And when I go out, behold, the prince of Greece will come. But I will tell you what is inscribed in the book of truth. There is none who contends by my side against these except Michael your prince. Or in Daniel 12.1, we read again of Michael. At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who, is in, who has charge over your people, speaking of the nation of Israel. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name is found written in the book. And then we have Jude 9, which is very interesting, where Michael is then, I guess, been put in charge of the funeral service of Moses. But when the archangel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. So Michael is prominent. As we watch Gabriel introduced to us throughout the Bible as he oversees the birth of Jesus Christ, announces his birth to the people, including Joseph and Mary, we see Michael overseeing the nation in the Old Testament. And again, he now comes to its defense here at the end, watching over the remnant there found in Israel. And as the war broke out in heaven, Michael and his angels were victorious and no longer was there found a place for Satan in heaven. In Job chapter 1, we have one of the most interesting things that we discover about Satan, and that is that he is in heaven accusing people and talking with God in the presence of God. We find that in Zechariah 3 also. Many believe that the devil is simply confined to the throne in hell, but that isn't the case until this moment. He has a place in heaven up until that point where he is accusing, as we will see and talk about in just a moment, the Christians who are in God and those 
who are of God. As we continue here in verse 9, And the great dragon was thrown down, that serpent who is called the devil and Satan, who, the, who is, I'm sorry, the deceiver of the whole world as it is written. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. There is many who debate the authenticity of the creation narrative in, in Genesis 1 today. But here, the serpent of old is discovered and discussed. I believe it was Satan in that serpent who tempted Eve to eat of the tree that God had forbidden her to eat from. Those were actual events. Adam and Eve were actual people who were perfect before God until they disobeyed and fell into that temptation that was provoked by the serpent who was none other than Satan himself. But we see here now at this point, he with his angels are thrown down to the earth. And I heard a voice in heaven, a loud voice in heaven saying, now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accusers of our brothers have been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony. And for they loved not their lives even unto death. Those who receive Christ during the tribulation period from the Jewish nation are preserved. And as they are preserved, they have overcome the wickedness of Satan himself through the blood of the Lamb, the word of their testimony, and for their surrender. For they rather would die than to obey Satan. But please understand why Satan was, is allowed in heaven today. He stands before God the Father accusing us when we fail and fall. He is one who is standing there before God and basically, if I may dramatize for you in just a moment, Basically saying that when we sin, how is it possible for us to be in your pres- His presence, who, He who is a holy God, when we have sinned, when Satan has done the exact same thing? Satan is basically accusing us, saying, if you've cast me down, why aren't you casting them out who have sinned, who call themselves after you and who you allow in your presence? Well, the only reason that we are allowed in the presence of God is because of the person of Jesus Christ. John calls him our great advocate, our great advocate, the one who stands before God the Father, and as we are being rightly accused by Satan, and that we are as guilty before God as, as could be, Christ steps in, as, if, as it were, and allows God the Father to see us through him. His blood washing us clean. Though our sins were as scarlet, now we are as white as snow. And Satan's accusations fall to the floor because of the redemptive work of Jesus Christ. And now that that accusation is no longer being present in heaven, and Satan has finally been thrown down once and for all, a rejoicing takes place. But as he is being thrown down with his henchmen, 
a wrath begins to unfold on the earth like never before. And that's what we find in this last three and a half year period. Where the Antichrist will then rise in demonic power, as we'll see in Revelation 13. The false prophet preceding him. But here's something that we must take away from all of this. Understand, as we learned at the beginning, that Satan hates us. Satan hates you and me. And we are in a battle. We are in a war. And though the war is won, the battles still continue. And you know as well as I do that in the superhero movies that we enjoy in each and every summer, often the grand finale of the movie finds the arch enemy, the villain himself, backed in a corner where he is all but defeated. And it's at that moment then he tries to take out as many as he possibly can to destroy as many lives as he possibly can at that moment. He knows his time is short. He knows that his end is at hand. He knows that he is going to be vanquished once and for all, and he's going to take as many people with him as possible. What an ending to a movie. And the superhero comes in and saves the day, right? That's the position Satan is in. And he is destroying life after life after life. And in these last three and a half years, his wrath will be poured out as the wrath of God then is poured out. And the world will be like something that we have never ever seen before at that moment. Horrific time. But I think of these words right now for you and I. Paul wrote them in Ephesians 6, 10 through 12. Finally, be strong in the Lord and in the strength of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Wow, does this put everything into context when we see this chapter. And we're looking at things behind the veil that are playing out at this point in time on the earth. And now we see that we have entered into that battle. And we need the whole armor of God each and every day. But so many Christians leave their house naked in the morning. And there's a component that we'll talk about at the end that is so neglected in this battle that must be brought to our attention before we leave this evening. It is something that brings the whole armor of God together. Paul makes it abundantly clear in Ephesians 6. But it's something that is often neglected in the life of the believer. And so he has been thrown down, those who accuse, who accuses them day and night before God. Verse 11, And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb, by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you on earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. And in verse 13, the wrath is played out on this earth. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman, that is Israel, who gave birth to the male child. But when the woman was given two wings of a great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness for the place where she has been, uh, is to be nourished for a time 
times and half a time. In fact, when Israel was being led from Pharaoh's persecution, as Exodus 19.4, you yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Or Isaiah 40, 30, and 31. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and the young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord, this is referring to them as they were coming back from Babylonian captivity. But they who wait for the Lord shall be renew, renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not faint. God's going to deliver these people. For three and a half years, again specified in this phrase, time, times, and half a times. Israel will be preserved, will be taken to a place in the wilderness. Many believe this to be that city of refuge, Petra itself, but we don't know for sure where this is. But God will protect His people. In verse 15, the serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to help, to the help of the woman, and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river that the dragon had poured forth from his mouth. This is referring undoubtedly to further elimination and extinction of these people. This flood, most grammar Scholars believe the flood is referring to uh, a move to, for Satan to exterminate all of the remaining people of Israel at that time. It's not the first time that's happened, has it? If you look throughout history, the Jewish people have been so persecuted over the years, haven't they? From the times of the medieval, even during the Reformation, the level of anti-Semitism was so uh, enormous. They were faulted with the crucifixion of Jesus Christ and were hated by Christians and the world alike. Just in the last hundred years, we have seen that nation persecuted like no other people on this earth at the hands of Adolf Hitler. And just yesterday, our own State Department, John Kerry and others, gathered at a urgent meeting that drew him away from other affairs to deal with the incredible rise of anti-Semitism that is currently happening in the world today, including the United States of America. The Bible says at the end, Israel will stand alone, and that's exactly what's happening. We see her isolated by the world. The world seems to hate her. Most of the UN resolutions, if you look at them, have to do with something of the, uh, the nation of Israel. It's amazing how the world views this little nation. And in the end, she'll stand alone. But she won't be alone. God will be with her. The anti-Semitism is growing at such an alarming rate, not only here in the United States, but also in Europe, that caused this summit to just take place uh, Monday. It was reported on in the Jerusalem Post which is the main newspaper there in Jerusalem, yesterday. And I'd like to read a couple of the excerpts from it. 
U.S. officials say that the department is monitoring the reported incidents reaching out to Jewish leaders to better assess conditions on the ground and working closely through diplomatic channels to encourage governments to speak out against the rise in anti-Semitic threats and violence in the light of a spike in anti-Semitic rhetoric and violence throughout the summer and the world. Later it goes on, Kerry indicated that there needs to be a strategy of coming together not only here in the United States, but with European governments and Jewish communities there to deal with the issue of anti-Semitism that has reached such a high level today. This was just yesterday. One of the greatest allies to Israel has always been the United States of America, and yet that is waning greatly in our current administration. God made a promise to Abraham that I believe still plays out today. Those who will bless you, I will bless, and those who will curse you, I will curse. And I believe that if you look throughout history, you will discover, especially if you look at the British, the fall of the British Empire, this is fascinating. When they turned their back on Israel, how their empire started to crumble. For that whole region, up until World War II, was con- mostly was controlled by the British. And then they turned their backs on Israel, look, and their empire fell apart. It's just interesting how things are happening. It doesn't mean we have to agree with everything that they do, but we have to understand God's... This is, these, are, these are the apple of God's eyes, these people. And I think we need to be careful, even though they have no regard for God. They are as secular as secular can be, but God has brought them back for this purpose to unfold his plans. Today, very few understand Israel's significant in biblical prophecy. They have very little understanding concerning their regathering to their nation and so forth. And yet God says all these things will happen before the end, and they're happening. So as the devil himself now in this last attempt to truly exterminate these people. In fact, just up until recently, the nation of Iran was led by a man who stated that they, all they wanted to do was wipe Israel from the face of the earth. He said it in the middle of the UN and some people clapped. Fascinating. Oh, and by the way, we just signed a treaty with Iran allowing them to continue their nuclear efforts and also to provide them significant amount of funding and military weaponry. Because they're a nation that can be trusted, right? They've demonstrated that. Ever since 1978, they've always been so hospitable to the American people, haven't they? As our people were kept there as hostages for year after year. These things are unfolding right before us. But to no avail, God's people will be saved and spared. Verse 17, Then the dragon in his futile attempt to exterminate the people became furious with the woman and went off to make war with the rest of her offspring. This is one of the reasons that I believe that the nation of Israel is involved here, that God saving the remnants, but leaving the rest of the nation who did not turn. He then goes and makes war against it. If this was referring to the church being here at this time, it wouldn't make sense. There wouldn't be two categories saying offspring and this remnant who is being saved. 
This is undoubtedly speaking of Israel. And on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus, he stood on the sand of the sea. As Satan positions himself at this moment, coming against the people of Israel as a flood, as Isaiah 59, 19 read, So they shall fear the name of the Lord from the west and his glory from the rising of the sun. For he will come like a rushing stream with which winds of the Lord drives. There are three things I'd like to end with this evening and conclude with. We are in a war, folks. Let us understand that. A war that has already been won, but the battles continue to rage day in and day out. We are fighting against a vanquished enemy that has nothing to gain and everything to lose. He is turning as one who has been backed into a corner and he is going to destroy as many as he possibly can. Do you have loved ones that do not know the Lord Jesus Christ? Do you have husbands, wives, sons, daughters, friends, co-workers that don't know the Lord? And you witness to them and you share with them and they're blind because the ruler of this world, Satan himself, has blinded their eyes. So the first thing we must be aware of is the fact that we must be aware of this. That we are in a war. It's a spiritual battle. It's a spiritual war that is raging. Number two, we must be prepared for this. That's what Paul was saying in Ephesians 6. Do all that you can do to stand against the wilds of the devils. Be ready. Be prepared. And lastly, one of the most important components of this all that Paul stresses in our battle against these principalities and powers and authorities, one that brings the whole armor of God together, that is clearly listed for us there in Ephesians 6, but often when I hear the passage taught, it is, it is almost is neglected in its mentioning. Or so much time is spent on each of the different elements of the items of the armor that this last element gets passed over, and that's prayer. Through all things, through prayer, he says. This is what brings it all together. The, one, the most threatening position that a Christian can position himself within is on his or her knees. And we are not fighting for victory, we're fighting from victory, and our weapons are not carnal, they are spiritual, they are mighty through God for the tearing down of strongholds, and one of those weapons, and one of the greatest weapons that we have is prayer, prayer, and prayer. And it is so neglected. That's why I think it's so prominent and so important, I should say, that we as a church come together and begin to pray. But I'm going to tell you, I'm going to tell you this from the bottom of my heart. I'm going to warn you up front. The moment you get serious about God and begin to exercise that seriousness in prayer, Satan gets serious about you. And he's going to make it tough. He's going to make it rough. But we won. And though it may get tough, and might get rough. 
I know that this is what God would have us to do. Remember that Jesus himself prepared himself 40 days and 40 nights in fasting and in prayer before he went and was tempted by the devil himself. And where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. If Jesus needed to prepare himself for 40 days and 40 nights, how do you think we should prepare ourselves? To what diligence should we exercise to prepare ourselves for such a battle? I will tell you that I personally believe that we are very biblically astute in this church. I believe we do a good job at teaching the Word of God. The teachers at this church do a good job at administering the Word of God. But we need to accompany that with prayer. We need to. And we are not praying to get our will done. It is to get His will done through us. It is so that we are on the same page as He is. We're going to pray for our needs. That is supplication. We're going to pray for others. That is uh, intercession. And we're going to pray in thanksgiving for all that God has already blessed us with. But we are going to pray. And I have no doubt things are going to get tough. They're going to get rough. But through prayer, we are looking at our P-Day instead of our D-Day. And I think it's time we storm the beaches and we take things back. And it's going to get rough. But God is with us.